Listening Dog Media. So I'm Chris Hawkins from Six Music. I don't normally get a cheer, but Six Music normally does, so let's do that again. I'm Chris Hawkins from BBC Radio Six Music. Better. Yeah. All right. Everyone's leathered. Brilliant. Sunday afternoon drinking. How to DJ. How to DJ. DJ. How to DJ. To succeed as a DJ, you must create your own identity. Hello, I'm Chris Hawkins, and this is How to DJ. Live on stage at Vinyl Adventures at Freight Island here in Manchester. Someone's giving you a stage. Bloody use it. How to DJ. The podcast that explores the life stories, techniques, minds, and experiences of much-loved DJs, where I ask them to pick five questions from a box of 45. It was never a, a dream to be a DJ, and it was never a dream to be on the radio. And joining me on stage now, one of Oldham's most loved sons. Are you still hanging about with them knobheads from Chatterton? The longtime keyboard player in the Inspiral Carpets. People from Oldham didn't become pop stars. And in his own experience. The split in 95 was very amicable, and see you all later, lads, you know what I mean? The drive time DJ on Excess Manchester. If I'd have known then that 50 years later I was going to be making a career out of talking on radio, I wouldn't have believed it. I remember my first link on the first day, my arse went. You know, it influenced me endlessly before I even became a musician. The biggest thing that's hit me is how much I've realised that people need to be around people. But being in, in a room with strangers who you can interact with is like precious, isn't it? So yeah, I just feel blessed that these little strange moments in time have happened to me. Here he is, Clint Boone! Boone Army! Let's go back to the beginning, Clint. How did you get the gig in the Inspiral Carpets? And I used to have a little rehearsal room and recording set up in uh, Ashton in a mill. This is like the early 80s, 81, 82, I started doing this. So bands had come to me uh, and I used to have a, like a four-track cassette-based multi-track recording system. It sounds really posh now, doesn't it? It's like a porter studio. So bands used to come and I'd record demos for them. And they could get like four songs for like 30 quid or something like that. So it was my little side business. I worked in the furniture trade at the time. So a lot of bands came and went. And one of the bands was in Spirals. And I recorded the first demo with them probably in early 1985, I'm guessing. So I wasn't in the band at this point. They didn't have keyboards. It was just a four-piece drums, bass, guitar, singer. And um, I fell in love with the music right away because I was drilling into the punk music scene. So I saw the elements of punk in the sound of the band. But I was also big on 60s psychedelic garage music. And I had these uh, amazing 60s keyboards. I had like a Vox Continental and a Farfisa Compact Duo and all these really iconic 60s machines. And I knew that if I brought in the Farfisa particularly with this sound that the Inspirals had, that it'd become a classic garage band. And it felt, you know, immediately felt right. It felt like the right sort of combination of what I could bring to it and what they already had. You became the defining sound of the band, really, didn't you? The organ did, yeah, very much. Um, yeah, the Farfisa. Everybody always thought it was an Hammond because Hammond organ is the go-to you know, phrase for vintage organ, it must be Hammond. But yeah, the Farfisa is quite a different instrument. It's transistor-based instrument, whereas the Hammond is mainly valves and quite a soft sound, the Hammond, where the Farfisa was like screechy, proper 60s noise. Yeah, and it worked. And it became, like I say, it became the reference point everybody talked about was the organ. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I still don't consider myself to be a good keyboard player. <laughs> I've not played for five years, believe it or not. And people still assume I'm a great keyboard player. I've not been doing live gigs in spirals, uh, obviously, on ice since I was, I was, we lost our drummer five years ago. Craig passed away. 
So since then we've not played and subsequently I've not had a reason to play keyboards. I'm, I'm making music at home all the time. So I'm writing and recording, but you can do wonderful things without having to be a keyboard player. I'm a lazy keyboardist these days. And how quickly did it escalate in the band? Really quickly. It felt like every week there was something to be excited about. You know, our first gig in Manchester or our first radio airplay, which was on BBC Radio Manchester on Meltdown Wednesday nights. They started playing tunes that we'd recorded the same night in, you know, in my studio. We record a tune and go straight to Meltdown. You know, without being judgmental enough to say it's not for radio yet, it's a bit rough around the edges. That was a massive milestone, you know, getting our first radio airplay. So to answer your question, it seemed like that every week was like, a, you'll never guess what. And it's building and building and suddenly John Peel's playing it. And then suddenly we've got record companies banging at our door. So it happened quick. I think our ascent was really, over that three or four years, uh, was really quick, but not over the top. It was like we, we learned the trade as we went. You do learn about stagecraft and not getting in the way of the main band, you know, they're setting the gear up and all that. So you learn the etiquette. So we're fortunate enough that it happened quickly, but not too quick that we didn't know what we were doing. Like, literally, it's like something was blossoming and something was just being born in front of us. And it became Manchester, and that was the perfect word for it. You know, whoever came up with that was like, it was bang on because it was mad, it was colourful, it was always positive. There was so much camaraderie between the bands. And there still is today, there still is. It's a real family. There's no bitching. There's been, yeah, you get a bit competitive, like when the Roses went in with Fool's Gold and... You know, they got in the top 40 before us. You're like, ah, oh, shit, we wanted to do that. But it just spurred us all on to be even better, you know what I mean? And yeah. I, mean, I remember a time when there was an incident where us and the Mondays were put up against each other in the press. And the phrase clueless knobheads became a thing for a time. Because I think Sean Ryder had said that about members of the Inspirals after seeing them out one night, whatever. But behind all that, there was a period where every time he put a single out, we'd get a fax from Sean Ryder from the factory records office saying, Top new single carpet heads. So there'd always be that camaraderie. It's the best way I can describe it. It's a real brotherhood, you know. When things started to really happen, did you start to feel famous? Yeah, I did. Because um, as a kid, that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be a pop star, you know what I mean? But I think part of me knew that I couldn't do it because I was from Oldham. People from Oldham didn't become pop stars. It didn't happen, you know what I mean? I'd never liked my voice because it was this broad Oldham accent at the time. You wouldn't think I was from Oldham, would you? <laughs> So I've grown up being embarrassed about my voice since the age of 11 when I got my first cassette recorder at Christmas. And it was a Deca Legato, it was called. And the first thing you do is you get the mic and you say, hello, my name's Clinton. And when I heard it back, it was like, who is that? What is that noise? And it was my voice. So if I'd have known then that 50 years later, I was going to be making a career out of talking on radio, I wouldn't have believed it. And it was punk that changed everything for me. That was the moment I thought, I can do that now properly, you know what I mean? What happened with the Inspirals for you then? Well, we split up, didn't we? Late 94, early 95. Manchester was over as far as most people were concerned. Britpop wasn't a phrase we'd heard at that point. It had not been coined. So we just decided amicably to knock it on the head for a bit and go our separate ways and do other things. Because we all had other interests that we wanted to pursue. We'd been together for 10 years. We'd had a great time. Let's knock it on the head for a while. So... The split in 95 was very amicable and see you all later, lads, you know what I mean? And that's what gave me the time then to get into all the things that I still do today. So I started doing radio presenting, started producing bands, started doing music for television. Engie Benji, anybody? The best kids TV tune ever. But yeah, I did a lot of that, just spread my wings, started club DJing again. I started DJing, believe it or not, in 1975. Wow. So I've been DJing for 45 years or something now. Where was that? Where did you Around start? Around Oldham, we set up a mobile disco, me and two friends. We did uh, little, you know, parties and like little pubs occasionally. I started DJing at an early age. Were you any good? 
when I think back, yeah. I mean, we were good because there's three of us. We built a nice collection of music. We'd get the chart records that were relevant. We had our own, you know, quite eclectic taste anyway. You know, I had a lot of Elvis stuff. So, yeah, we, we were good in that respect. And what we used to do, this was interesting. We had three of us and we'd take it in turns. So, like, one would be DJing and the other two would be dancing in front. So, if you'd have, like, a disco record at the time, oh, I love to love, two of us would be in front. <laughs> Not very good dancing, but at least we were trying. When did the Kim Boone experience start? During that break from the Inspiral. So, 95, 96, I started writing a load of new songs, knowing that they wouldn't be Inspiral songs. I just thought, I've got to keep writing, yeah. keep recording. And a lot of those songs that I wrote in that period were about being on my arse, you know, financially and domestically. It was just, you know, there's a lot going on in my life that came out in those songs. Um, they're all songs about self-belief and about getting back out, you know, can't keep a good man down, climbing back inside the dream. The cool people know who the cool people are. They're all these songs that were very psychedelic and upbeat, but they were like, I was telling myself, it's all right, you're going to get back in there. So even though I was on my ass, I wrote these songs that prophesied where I was going next. And that became the Clint Boone experience. What I really want to know is, when did the Boone Army thing start? I'll tell you exactly when it started. I was doing a gig in Newcastle with the Clint Boone experience, and um, up there is Toon Army, isn't it? So we're doing this gig, and people started shouting Boone Army. So it was the Geordies that started it. Wow. And I just got a banner made then that we put behind the band when we did gigs. And then it became the Boone Army. That's what the fan base became known as. And, yeah, the and you get Ar- it everywhere you go. Yeah, even in Tesco. There's always somebody that we need to try and get your head down. Yeah, you'll hear it from somebody in vegetable aisle like, Boone Army. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm here. On the DJing, you said 1975 was the first time. Was it always in mind that you'd go back to it or it would always be part of your makeup? Not at all, no. When I started doing it, it was just a spontaneous thing, I think. And it was never a, a dream to be a DJ, and it was never a dream to be on the radio. Like I said, I, just, I was convinced from an early age that I could never make a living out of anything that was to do with my voice. So, no, I mean, that, that DJ thing just... Uh, I think it started off spontaneously, but over the years it became a nice way of making money, and it still is. It's a great thing. There's an event DJ, you know, clubs and bars and festivals and events and all that, so that's my main income is that. How did you get into radio? Uh, again, during that break with the Inspirals, which is why I don't regret it happening. It's like I had my bands that have stayed together, you know, through thick and thin, like the Charlatans and James, amazing bands. But I feel fortunate that we got that. It was actually a nine year gap where we could try other things out because, you know, people started saying to me, do you fancy doing a little radio show? You do these trial broadcasts when you want to build a radio station. It's a thing called an RSL, I think, is it? And you do, a, you do like a one month trial broadcast to prove to the authorities that you can... Uh, operate a, a radio station as a, as a business and serve the community and be entertaining, not be controversial. So a lot of these little companies were saying, we're doing a trial broadcast, would you like to come and play some of your favourite records? So that really appealed to me. You know, the fact that I could go and share my taste in music with an audience, even though it might only be 30 people in the Northern Quarter, which it was on a couple of occasions. So I did a bit of that. And then the Inspirals got back together in 2003. And in that tour, I got to do an interview with Tom Robinson. I think we did a little session for him. And then me and Tom, our Tom, Ingley, did an interview with Tom Robinson on Six. And at the end of the interview, he said to me, you sound really good on the radio. He said, would you like to stand in for me? I'm going away in August for two weeks. And I'm like, fucking hell, that's Six music. I mean, at the time, it was nothing like the iconic place it is now. But all musicians loved Six music from the moment it started. So it was an absolute pleasure to be asked to do it. And the BBC put me up in London for two weeks in the hotel right next to Broadcasting House. And I did two weeks standing in for Tom. I remember my first link on the first day. I shit it. My arse went. It was just like, 
<laughs> this is proper radio and this is international. There's people listening around the world in every time zone and I'm here with this fucking Oldham accent. So, and I got through it, settled into it. We had a producer that really helped me through it all. And yeah, that was my first serious step into radio. And while we were down there, me and my wife, we uh, conceived Oscar, who's sat there. He's a six music baby. Oscar Boone. Oscar. Blame it on Tom Robinson. Do you get the Boone Army thing, Oscar? You will do. I'll make sure you do. <laughs> but that was, um, you know, a big step into radio and, and probably a moment where I thought I could actually probably do this now as a career option. And subsequently, because I did the sixth thing, I started getting more serious work up north. So I was getting asked to stand in for Terry Christian on Century, which was, again, a real pleasurable gig to be doing. So it just escalated from there, really. And then I mentioned the NG Benji project before, and Granada then said, will you do a full album about the characters in the TV programme and the, the vehicles they drive? So there was a van called Dan. So I did a song called Dan, Dan, Amazing Van. So anyway, I had this album's worth of work. And I remember when it finished, the day it finished, that 12 months of work, and I'd just finished listening to the last mix, knowing that that was it. And the phone went, and it was a friend of mine from London who said, I've just had a meeting with XFM. So at the time, XFM was purely a London station, but very well respected again around the world. And this guy said, XFM want to speak to you about possibly helping them to get the Manchester license. So here I'm, I've gone from, you know, messing about with radio, playing my favourite songs in the Northern Quarter, to being asked by one of the world's biggest radio brands if I fancy working with them. So I spent about 12 months then helping XFM to win the Manchester license by doing various awareness raising events. And they won the license and I got the gig. So suddenly I had the most proper job I've ever had. It's like, since then I've, I've worked in radio five, six days a week, for 20 years or something, which again is bizarre, isn't it? You said earlier that you kind of set out to be a star, I suppose. Perhaps you'd be too modest to agree completely, but if that was the intention, did you feel like you got the same adulation being on stage as you were getting on the radio? Are they a different feeling? What I've found with that, and it still applies today, is that you get the same feedback and adulation. But with radio, it's more delayed. Yeah. So like during the pandemic, I was doing my show from home for like 16 months. Obviously, not a lot of live contact with people, even on social media, it wasn't that. I think what I'm saying is when you walk down the street and people come up to you and say, I listen to you every night on the radio, it's brilliant, it gets me, you know. And I'm getting that again now that I'm out in the world, I'm getting it again. I've had it a couple of times today with people that I've never met have come up and said, you really make me day, which is nice. And I mean, Do you need I, that, do you think? As a person. I'm glad it's back to being that. Now that I'm back out DJing again. So yeah, I probably do need it. Never been asked that before. But yeah, I think when I was a kid, I was, I was an attention seeker, definitely. So maybe that's uh, all part of my psyche. Maybe I'm just, <laughs> just want it. <laughs> I just want that love. Well, I was saying for 16 months when I couldn't go out and DJ to people, I didn't realise how much I was missing people. But the biggest thing that's hit me is how much I've realised that people need to be around people. I mean, I loved being at home with my wife and my kids for 16 months. But being in, in a room with strangers who you can interact with is like precious, isn't it? Do you miss actually walking out on stage to play in a band? I do, but I, I get that when I'm getting into a DJ booth and getting things moving. There's a similar feeling. But yeah, I think the bottom line is there's nothing better than getting on stage to perform a song live that you've written. That really does feed every bit of me. I remember coming to see you at uh, the Scala in London and uh, it was as the Clint Boone experience. And I swear to God, like nearly all of the gig was just Boone Army. That's how it felt. Yeah. It was a good band, that. I mean, it was, it was a bit out of its time as well, because at that point, I mean, this is 97, 98, 99-ish. There was no other band doing what we were doing. It was out and out, cabaret. I mean, it was all, you know, stuff that I'd written. But it was like a real experience, wasn't it? We had props on stage. I had a reindeer's head on the front of the organ 
which is actually quite out of order now. It's an actual reindeer's head that my mum and dad had got. You could still see the bullet hole in his head. Seriously. Which I'm totally not into all that. I don't condone that sort of killing. But anyway, so we had a reindeer's head. We had a life-size cardboard cut out of me stood behind me. We had trees. We had uh, an opera singer called Alfie Bo. Do you recognise that name, Alfie Bo? Yeah, He was course. the opera singer in the Inspiral Carpets. We had a kid playing tuba, Stephen Oakes from Manchester. Yeah, yeah. He, he played tuba. He was like just helping us as a roadie. And then one day he said, oh, I used to play tuba at school. So I said, right, I'm getting you a bloody tuba. What is it about you and famous roadies? Yeah, yeah. Noel Gallagher auditioned to be the Inspiral singer in uh, December of 88 in that same little studio in Ashton that I'd built. You know, we knew him anyway. He was a fan of the band, so we were friends of his already. And when he put the idea forward about singing with us, we all thought it was a bit funny. But he said, let's try it. And he came in, he did an audition with us. And he could sing, but he didn't have the kind of voice we were looking for. Yeah, so Noel was our roadie for like four or five years, but more than a roadie, he was with us every day. Like everything we did, we took Noel with us. Was he a good roadie? He was a loyal team member, but when it came to setting gear up on stage, he never sweated. He'd always try and get other people to do it. You know, like the crew in the, the venue or whatever. We learned a lot from Noel. We, we benefited from having him in the camp and he benefited from that experience. And he still talks really fondly of his time with the Inspirals. Yeah, he he still says... In terms of my career, you know, Noel's career, that was the happiest he's ever been because he got taken around the world, you know, he got endless supplies of food, drink, um, and he got well paid. Whereas from the moment Oasis started, the pressure was on his shoulders. He had a lot of responsibility, a lot of headaches. All right, Clint, time to dip into the box now. In this box are 45 questions, each one. Is that 45, on like 45 RPM? Is that what you're Yeah, exactly, it? yeah, look. Amazing. So I want you to dip into the box and each one's got a question on it, okay? Complete this sentence. I wish I'd never. Oof. There's children present. <laughs> and it's what got yourself. I, I assume it's like DJ related, isn't it? I wish I'd never. When CDs came out and it coincided with the Inspirals doing a lot of like signing sessions in shops around the world. So you'd be in New York and the, the, you know, some record shop is like, go and sign records. I'm like, yeah, what, what are we going to get? And they'd be saying like, you know, $200 worth of CDs each or whatever. And because CDs are easier to carry than vinyl, we all started getting CDs. So I wish I'd never stopped buying vinyl. Between 1990-ish and, you know, the next 15 years, I'm passionate about my vinyl, more so now than ever. But there's a big hole in my vinyl collection that I'm still trying to fill. How big's the collection? I've not counted it, but it's, in, it's spread across the house in various parts of the house. Most of it's down in my studio in the, in the basement. And then some of it's in the, uh, the white room, as we call it. What's your most prized vinyl? I'm not a very materialistic person, so... I've probably got records that are worth a lot more than the one I'm going to mention, but I'm a big fan of Doves. And Doves used to be called Sub Sub, and they made this amazing rave record called Space Face back in the early 90s, it was. And it's an amazing piece of music. And one day when I went to XFM, I went into the studio to do my, my drive time show, and there's a record on my desk, and it's a white label test pressing of Sub Sub, Space Face, signed by Jimmy Goodwin from Jimmy and the Divs. And he left it on my desk knowing that I was a massive fan. I didn't know him that well at the time. I just thought that was a gesture for somebody that had probably heard me raving about it or playing it on the radio. So I still treasure that, absolutely treasure that. And then I collect these weird things that I've not heard anybody else having them, but you know you get a seven-inch record. So I've got six-inch, 78 RPM, coloured vinyl records for kids, like nursery rhyme songs from the 30s and 40s on acetate. Right? You just find them in junk shops and they cost like pennies. Because nobody knows what they are. So I've got a nice little collection of those, which is probably a good album in there. But certainly podcasting in there. Uh, very sampleable, I would have thought as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Again, worth nothing but vinyl that I really treasure. And then obviously probably the first record that we ever made, you know, the Plane Crash EP. 
because I think I've dreamed for so long. I think the idea of making a record was more idealistic than being in a band and being a musician. It was like, I want to make a record, you know what I mean? I remember being overwhelmed with pride when, that, when I could actually hold that and show it to my mum and dad and say, look, I made a bloody record here. <laughs> Back into the box, Clint, for question two. Yeah. Get in there. Uh, if you could only thank one person for all that you've done in your career, who would that be? I'd probably go for Daniel Miller of Mute Records. Uh, he's the guy that signed in Spirals. We were at the time, we were being courted, if you like, by all the major labels in the country. CBS, which became Sony, I think. Uh, Warner Brothers, uh, all these big labels. And we were a bit worried about just signing with a major because we'd heard that some of our contemporaries who signed to majors hadn't had a great time for the first year or two in terms of pressure being put on the band to get, you know, chart records. Daniel Miller heard the mixes of the first album, Life. And he just called us the next day and said, well, I want to talk about doing a deal. And we loved it that his label at the time, he had like Einstein's End of Neubart and he had Depeche Mode and Erasure, Diamond and Galas, these weird roster of bands that were just, some of the music they were making was crazy, these people, you know, Einstein's End of Neubart, and have you heard them? German band. They make music with fire extinguishers and breaking milk bottles and all that stuff. And we just said right away, he's not going to make us change. He's not going to worry about if we're not having a hit record. And we signed with Daniel if I had to pick one person, like I said, to help with the, uh, the career question, I think it'd be Daniel Miller. I mean, obviously, my parents for letting me pursue that path when a lot of people in my position in Oldham back then were getting encouraged to do proper jobs. Did your dad not ever tell you to get a proper job? I'm sure he did. I, I, I do it in my head. He did. When you're going to get a proper job, that's exactly what my dad sounded like. Are you still hanging about with them knobheads from Chatterton? Um, <laughs> but yeah, my mum and dad happily watched me forsake the day job that I had in order to pursue the band thing. I was a company director from 21, so immediately before the Inspirals, I'd gone working for a furniture company in Ashton. And uh, by 21, one of the partners left and the managing director came to me and said, how do you fancy joining up? Because I was such a loyal worker. So I became a company director at age 21. And then it gave me the chance to have some money coming in. It gave me a chance to have the, uh, the space that became the studio. And here's an interesting little quirk for you in my story. One of the people that became a co-director with me soon after, so he bought shares in the company, he came, moved into our office, worked with us day in, day out, was um, the brother of Brian Epstein. So Brian was the Beatles manager, his brother Clive. They were from a furniture background. The Epstein family were massive in Liverpool with their furniture department store. When Brian died, Clive, as part of the, the business, he inherited the job of managing the Beatles until Alan Klein was appointed to do it. So... One of my closest friends back then, who's sadly no longer with us, and a guy that I used to work with day in, day out, used to manage the Beatles. Wow. What a story. And, um, but the funny bit was, that, like, we'd be sat in this, uh, this mill in Ashton, uh, and in the office we all had our own desks. Like, my mum worked there, so my mum was like the receptionist at the time, and I think my dad was working out on the shop floor. I had a desk as well, and I'd be like copying cassette tapes of the Inspirals, you know, like demos to send out. And Clive was always really supportive of my early days as, as an early Inspiral or whatever. But the phone would ring sometimes and Clive wouldn't be in the office, his phone would ring. So he'd pick it up and he'd be like, hello, is Clive there, please? And be like, oh, sorry, he's not in. Can I leave him a message? And it'd say like, can you tell him that Scylla phoned? Scylla Black. <laughs> Jerry Marsden. I'm sure Freddie Garrity at some point. Household name Scouts would be phoning up for Clive and we'd be there. <laughs> anyway, so, uh, you know what you're saying before about uh, strange moments in my, my career. Yeah. A lot of the time, you know, that film Forrest Gump, where he's in these weird chapters of history in the world, in his case, I feel like I've been at important moments in music along the way. 
Alfie Ball was unknown. He was, uh, he was still spraying cars in uh, Fleetwood. He used to work at TVR, spraying cars. And his dream was to be an opera singer. So he's a megastar now. He's, a, he's huge. And his first ever recordings, as far as I know, were recorded in my loft studio in a semi-detached house in Milner, Rochdale. He's a, a decent guy. I've met him a couple of times and he is just dead down to earth, isn't he? Yeah. I mean, he's a beautiful man. So yeah, I just feel blessed that these little strange moments in time have happened to me. Yes, there will be a book. Of course. <laughs> How to DJ with Chris Hawkins. Still to come. I owe him a lot in terms of the influence he gave me as a youngster, the education he gave me, you know, learning about music. So I, I don't walk around and go, yeah, big I am, but I think moments like that make you realise you've had an impact on people in a big way, really. Back into the box for question three. Name three songs that make you dance. I don't consider myself to be a good dancer. I used to be. When I was younger, I always thought, like when I was Oscar's age, I thought I was the best dancer in the world. I thought I had the moves. And in hindsight, I wasn't that good. But these days, like when I'm DJing, I always stomp my feet. I do that two-step or whatever you call it. I do all that. But when I play like music like The Upsetters, Lee Perry's early band, uh, Scar Band, The Upsetters, Dollar in the Teeth, Live Injection, that really gets me. Any decent Scar tune. I love Elvis Presley. Jailhouse Rock, I love. I can do a good move to Jailhouse Rock after a few pints. Blind Faith by Chasing Status. Well, good for that. Those will all make me pull a good move. What's your favourite song of your own? I know it's a cliche, but it's like, what's your favourite kid that you've ever had, isn't it? Oscar, obviously, because he's here. Because he's here, yeah. <laughs> I wrote a song called Sackville for the Inspiral Carpets. I mean, I'm proud of everything I've ever written, mostly. Anyway, I mean, some of it's a bit trivial and, you know, twee. But uh, Sackville was something I'm, I'm very proud of it. Quite a powerful song. I love uh, White No Sugar. I'm proud of that as well. The seeds of that started in the early 90s. I had an idea for a song called Senile Street, which is actually one of the phrases in the, the song. But eventually, it was when that era when I was sort of uh, at home on my ass, 95, 96. I developed it into a song called White No Sugar, which was literally me just talking about the fact that I was a coffee addict. I was just drinking my coffee, White No Sugar, all day long. And it was the very early days of the internet. So the song was talking about buying things on the internet, which at the time was like, that's not going to happen. And it was about people across the world connecting. You know, the guy on the Mac in Macedonia, it's on the girl with a fully loaded PC in DC. So it was all that. So at the time, it was, um, it was an incredible new world of something that was going to happen. But yeah, I'm, I'm proud of it. And we did it on a TFI Friday. Did you see that? I remember, yeah. yeah. Chris Evans introduces us. And then the opening shot is the reindeer with the bullet hole. <laughs> you wouldn't get that nowadays, would you? Be complaining. Uh, back into the box. Question four of five. Um, has a DJ ever saved your life? Not in the true sense of the word. I don't think they have anyway. But John Peel, you know, I think John Peel, I owe him as a DJ and a radio presenter. I owe him a lot in terms of the influence he gave me as a youngster, the education he gave me, you know, learning about music. You know, to listen to John Peel's show was just like, every show was an encyclopedia, wasn't it, of music styles and genres and messages. And, you know, it influenced me endlessly before I even became a musician. And then, you know, with the Inspirals, you know, fortunately, he picked up on us, he championed us from quite early on. So we got, you know, we got to benefit from him being a fan. That helped us to get a record deal faster than we would have done otherwise. And then to meet him and to become his friend and to be welcomed into his family, if you like, was um, incredible, really. So, yeah, John Peel as a DJ. Yeah, he saved my life. He made my life. You know, that's probably the way to put it, isn't it? Brilliant answer. Last night a DJ made my life. Last question from the box now then, Clint. There you are. Uh, what's the most famous you've ever felt? That's a weird one, that. It's going to be hard, that. I sort of know that I am, uh, you know, 
known for what I do, but I don't really wallow in it. I swan about sometimes, like, yeah, Boone Army's home, what's for tea, you know what I mean? But um, I suppose the other day, like during the, well, a couple of months ago, like being in Aldi or something, and I had an hat on, I had my mask on, I had a scruffy coat on. In fact, the hat was a baseball hat, which I never wore. So I, I was proper, like, masked up, and uh, somebody recognised me for my voice. He was behind me in the queue, and as I was talking to the person on the tilt, he said, are you Clint Boone? So I don't walk around and go, yeah, big I am, but I think moments like that make you realise you've had an impact on people in a big way, really. What about, uh, like, Top of the Pops? I've done it eight times. I did it seven times with the Inspirals. But then I did it with Shed 7 as well. I played on She Left Me On Friday on the record, and then when they came to do Top of the Pops, they invited me on. So that was nice, because that was at that period where it was a bit of a low point in my life, you know, like 95, 96-ish, and to end up back on Top of the Pops with my mates was lovely. But yeah, it's a great experience, that, because at the time, you'll know this, like, for our generation, Top of the Pops was, it was like the X Factor. That was like, it was the measure of who's going to be massive, who's going to be an household name. It was pretty much like the, the thing that we all strived to be on. Yeah. But when you got there, it was actually a bit cack at times. It was like, you could see the audience being herded round, literally with, like, blokes with sticks herding them round, like, get over here, get over here. And then you had to do, like, the endless run-throughs of the track you were going to be performing. So yeah, well, it wasn't as glamorous as you imagine as a viewer, but to me, it was like every time I did it, it was like just a treasured moment, really. When we started doing Top of the Pops, that was when I no longer had to explain to mum and dad how successful we were going to be because they could see them we'd done it because it was important to their generation as well. You it's know? amazing how many bands say that. It was like validation yeah, to their parents. Right, yeah. One last question. Uh, you've done the five from the box. One last one. Clint, it's the end of the world and you've got to play the last three records on earth. What would they be? I'm going to name three that they're not relating to the end of the world as such. I think Pounding by Doves, which is one of my go-to favourite records ever. I think I'd probably play The Beach Boys, God Only Knows. And the last one would be my favourite Elvis song, If I Can Dream, which is beautiful. I get goosebumps even saying it. Yeah. He did a, a big TV, a live TV performance in the 1968 NBC TV special. And it ends with Elvis doing If I Can Dream dressed in a white suit. He performed it once dressed in a full black leather suit and then he did it in a, a white, beautiful suit and they, they'd show the white one. He didn't write it, he didn't write, I don't think he wrote any songs, but it was written for him for that TV show. And the message of, of the song is just beautiful, isn't it? Not much use at the end of the world, but if, just to remind yourselves in the last few seconds that, you know, if I can dream of a better land where all my brothers walk hand in hand, you know, it's like the, the message, the most unifying sort of message you could have. No problem having that at the end of the world, really, is so just to remind us of what a great time we've had. All right, thank you so much to Clint Boone, uh, live on stage at Freight Island as part of Vinyl Adventures. And that was How to DJ. Thanks for listening. Please remember to follow us wherever you get your podcast from. Can I add a bit here? How to DJ. Somebody asked me before about this, I said what I'm doing. Out to DJ. What I do, I just press play and shout Boon Army. I don't do out, that's all I do. Boon Army!